Well, good morning, friends. It's so good to see you. Uh, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. Thanks for being with us on this beautiful Sunday. I hope you have great plans for this afternoon. Mine involve mowing my lawn and hopefully turning my grill on. So one won't be as much fun as the other, but I hope whatever you do is a lot of fun this afternoon. Uh, last week, we started this series through the Old Testament book of Ruth, a story that happened anywhere from three to 4,000 years ago, but actually has amazingly relevant things to say to our lives today. And we just looked at the first five verses of Ruth chapter one last week, and we were introduced to Naomi and Elimelech, who were two Jewish people who lived in Bethlehem, and famine came to Bethlehem and to Judah, and they left Bethlehem, and they traveled 70 to 100 miles to a place called Moab, which was a land that was actually filled with people who were considered enemies of Israel. And they traveled there with their two sons, and while they were there, their two sons grew up and married two Moabite women. And over the course of time, Naomi's husband Elimelech died, as did the sons, as did both of her sons. And so when verse 5 ends in Ruth chapter 1, Naomi is a foreigner in Moab without a husband and without sons, with no male relative to provide for her or protect for her, protect her. And it's just her and, and it's two, uh, her two daughter-in-laws named Ruth and Orpah. And that's where we're going to pick up the story this morning, and we're going to look at the rest of Ruth chapter 1. And I think that the rest of Ruth chapter 1 could be titled The Return. It's all about the return. In fact, there's a key word in this passage, a Hebrew word that is translated return, that is used 12 different times just in this passage. And so this is called The Return. Now, we love stories about returning. I think our society loves stories about people going back home and returning and coming back. And I was thinking of some of the most popular movies in our country and through the course of time. And one of the movies I thought of was The Return of the King, right? The third movie in the Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, that the king would be returned to his rightful reign and rule over Middle Earth. And we love that. Another really popular, iconic film is Return of the Jedi, which is just, you know, also the third film in a trilogy and a significant movie in the Star Wars um, saga. Then I even thought of movies like, you know, I'm a kind of group in the 80s, so I thought of E.T., which is like the ultimate 80s movie. And although the word return is not in the title of the film, the whole uh, E.T.'s famous statement is E.T. go home, right? He's trying to get home. Then I thought of The Wizard of Oz, another well-loved, very popular film where Dorothy says, there's no place like home. We love movies about returning. And then I thought of maybe my favorite returning movie of all time came out in 1993. I would have been like 14 years old called Homeward Bound. This is epic classic movie. If you haven't seen it, you need to see this movie. These two dogs and this cat overcome so many obstacles to find their way home. Really doesn't belong in a list with Return of the King or Return of the Jedi, but, but I have an emotional attachment to that film. So well, returning is a universal theme that we can all relate to. And as we walk through this passage together this morning, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the need to return, the cost to return, and the way to return. Okay, the need, the cost, and the way. Let's talk first about the need to return. Verse 6, we find Naomi in the fields in Moab. She's a refugee, she's a foreigner, and she's working the fields. She's living off the scraps of others. She's living with the pain of her past, the pain of the loss of her husband and both of her sons, the regrets of the decision that they made to leave Bethlehem and to come to Moab. And she has no real hope for her future. 
But when she's in those fields working, some really good news comes to her. She hears word in verse 6 that the Lord had visited his people and had given them food. In other words, she heard that the famine was over and that, most importantly, the Lord was blessing his people again. And so Naomi looks around and goes, I need to return. I need to go back to where I left from. And she begins to travel back to Bethlehem, and Ruth and Orpah, her daughters-in-law, join her. But as they're making the journey, we see in verse 8, Naomi turns to them, and Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house, and may the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. She's speaking about the way that these two daughters-in-law loved her sons and even loved her after her sons had passed. Verse 9, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So she's returning, and as she's returning, she turns to her daughters-in-law and says, you know what, you should return too. Now why do we return? Why do we go back to places? Sometimes we go back to places because we forgot something, right? And when you have to go back home because you forgot something important that you need for your trip. Sometimes we return because we miss something or we miss someone. Some of you vacation the same place every year because there's a, there's a restaurant there that you love or there's a spot on the beach that is nostalgic to you and means so much to you. Some people return places because someone there misses them. Some of you have to travel to go see family, to see your mom, to see your dad, and they miss you, and so you go back and you return. Sometimes we return to places because we know it's where we need to be, but often we return to places simply because it's where we feel like we belong. Some of you have places in your life, like the same coffee shop every morning, the same barista making your coffee the same way, and you go there day after day after day because you feel like it's a place where you belong. Some of you have places that you travel to because you belong there, and when you go home, you feel like, oh, this is where I belong. Now, when Naomi is talking to Ruth and Orpah, she says something really important that helps us understand the need to return. She says that my hope for you is that the Lord will grant you to find rest. Rest is a key word here. And in this context, rest is about the hope of marriage. And we know that because in verse 8, she says, go back to your mother's house, which was unusual. Back then, they have always would have referred to it as their father's house. But she calls it the mother's house because the mother would prepare or help the daughter prepare for a future marriage. So she's saying, go back. And then she's actually more explicit in verse 9 where she says, I hope that both of you find rest in the house of your husband. In this time in history, in this society, there was no rest for an adult woman without a male relative to protect her and provide for her, the husband or her adult sons. And Naomi has neither, and Ruth has none, and Orpah has none. They're vulnerable without that in society. There's no safety, there's no security, there's no certainty, there's no rest. Now, I know it's not like that anymore. However, we may not be able to relate to this specific example of rest, but there is a universal need for rest that this story actually highlights. Because last week, we saw that Ruth begins with the phrase, in the days of the judges. And we know that the days of the judges were filled with craziness and turmoil and all kinds of, I mean, read the book of Judges. It was wild, wild west. And the book of Ruth begins that way, but the book of Ruth ends with the genealogy that leads to a king named David. And so there's actually this framework for the book of Ruth that says, just like a widow needs to find rest in the home of another husband, at this time in history... In a similar way, the people of Israel were not going to have rest until they had the security that a king, a king like David, would bring them. But even bigger than that, 
There is this message here that every single one of us needs rest and we can't give it to ourselves. We have to get it somewhere else. I mean, all of us know what it's like to feel tired, right? Everyone's felt tired at some point in their life. Some of us feel like we're in a season of tiredness, that we've been in years of tiredness. I saw someone walk into the 9 a.m. service this morning with two massive Dunkin' Donut coffees in his hands. And he wasn't looking to share. He was just looking. I was like, am I that boring of a preacher? <laughs> you need both of those. He needed it because he's like, I didn't sleep well. I got to have some caffeine. We can relate, right? We can relate. However you stay awake, it's great. It's necessary. But we all have this experience with needing rest, physical rest. But as much as most of us probably feel like we got to catch up on our physical rest, the rest that really bothers us the most is the lack of rest within our soul. When we don't have peace, when there's no rest for our minds, for our hearts, and for our spirits. And it's interesting because rest represents things like security and provision, future, hope, and identity. Things that every human being craves, and we're all looking for this rest. And Naomi, in this story, she cannot envision a world for Ruth or Orpah where they're ever going to have rest if they don't have a husband. And again, we may not relate to that, but every single human being has a world in which they cannot envision rest for themselves. If they don't have this, if they don't have that. If they don't accomplish this, if people don't think this or that about them. Every human being has their hope for rest attached to a very specific vision of the world. So the need to return is about our sort of insatiable, unavoidable need for rest. We always turn to something for rest. We go back to something. We return to something. We're searching for rest. Now, why? Why are we that way? And the Christian worldview actually gives us a very compelling answer. If you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, there's a creation account. There's actually two creation accounts there, but as you make sense of them, one thing becomes very clear, that when God finishes the work of creation, he rests. In fact, the beginning of Genesis 2, this creation poem says that on the seventh day of creation, God rested from his work. Now, why did God rest? Well, you and I rest because we're tired. We rest because we're worn out. When I mow the lawn this afternoon, I'm going to come in and rest afterwards, right? We rest. God doesn't rest for that reason. God doesn't get tired. He doesn't grow weary. He doesn't run out of energy, so to speak. So why is God resting in Genesis chapter 2? And biblical scholars say that God's resting not because he's tired, but because he's satisfied. That he has created for himself a temple in which his presence can dwell. And all ancient Near Eastern readers of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, as soon as they saw that God rested on day 7, they would have realized, oh, God's only rest in their homes. God's only rest in their temples. And so all of creation, this world, this universe, God created so that his presence could rest and dwell. This is the home in which he wants to rest and be at rest. And then he creates humans to extend his reign and rule throughout creation to do good work in and for the good of creation. And in doing so, he invites us into that rest and into that relationship. And so we have that rest alongside of him. But then if you know how Genesis goes, chapter 3 comes along and we lose the rest. We squander the rest. Instead, we trust in ourselves and we chase after other things. And the rest of the story of human history and the rest of the story of scripture is people trying to get back to that rest. And so that's why in our human hearts, according to the Christian worldview, there is this returning 
for rest. We spend all of our lives trying to turn to things in hopes that they will help us return to rest. Let me give you some real life examples. Um, people's accomplishments that they put their hope in or their achievements. Some people, it's their glory days that are behind them. They just keep trying to return to their glory days and they like to get together with friends and tell stories about when life was great and when they were the best at this and when they were great athletes and when all this sort of stuff, returning back to things. Sometimes people return to moments. They try to recreate moments because they think it will give them rest and, and, and identity and security and hope. Some people are returning to specific places. They, they say, I'm miserable here, so if I move from New York over here, then I will find happiness because the taxes are better and I'm more aligned with the politics or whatever your reason for going is. But the problem is, is that the lack of rest inside of us is not always tied to places. It's tied within our hearts. And sometimes it's relationships. We run from relationship to relationship thinking this relationship will give me rest and this one will give me rest. But whatever it is, we keep returning to things hoping for rest. In fact, sometimes we even return to destructive behavior and sin. There's a Proverbs that, there's a, in Proverbs 26, 11, it's a very vivid metaphor. And the author says, like a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool returns to his sin. And I got a dog, so I know what he's talking about. <laughs> I think the writer had a dog too. But dogs will do that. They'll return to worse things than vomit. I've learned that also. And, but in a similar way, fools return to their sins. We keep going back. Now, why do we keep going back to things that leave us empty? Why do we keep going back to things that cost us so much? Why do we keep going back to things that prove to not bring us rest? Because we're just wired for rest, the return for rest. The question isn't, will you spend your life returning? You will. The question is, what or who are you returning to? What are you turning to? Where do you turn or return for rest? The second thing we learn in this story is not just the need to return, but the cost to return. Orpah and Ruth, they both insist. They say to Naomi, we're never going to leave you. We're with you. We love you. We're devoted to you. And Naomi says, there's no future with me for you. I'm going back to Bethlehem. You're going to be refugees, foreigners there, just like I am here. And believe me, she's saying, I lived the life of a refugee foreigner in Moab. You don't want my life in Bethlehem. And there was this law back then that God had instituted to protect women, where if a woman was left a widow without a son, then the husband's brothers were supposed to, one of the husband's brothers was supposed to take that, that widow into his house and, and marry her so that he would, she would have that security and that she would have children. I know that's a really strange law to think of today, but that's the way it was done then. And, I, and Naomi says to, to Ruth and Orpah, I, I have no more sons. I have no, and even if I were to find a husband and, and, and begin to have a son now, you're going to wait until he grows up? And so she's saying, there's no future with me. And, and Naomi is saying that the Lord's hand is against me. So she's desperately trying to talk them out of returning with her. And then look at the story in verse 14. It says, they lifted up their voices and they wept again. I mean, this is an emotional scene. They don't want to leave her. But Orpah does. It says Orpah kissed her mother-in-law and implied in there is that she kissed her goodbye. She kissed her and she left. But Ruth clung to her. And Naomi says to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. And then this is what Ruth is probably most famous for saying. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge or where you live, I will live. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there will I be buried. She's saying, wherever you, wherever you are, I'm going. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. 
And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. If you're going to return, you have to leave something behind. If you're going to return, you have to leave something behind. Either decision that Orpah or Ruth made, they were going to have to leave something or someone behind and something or someone that they loved. Think about it. If they were going to go back to Moab, they had to leave Naomi behind. And they loved Naomi. In fact, the language in the Hebrew here is very strong. Naomi doesn't look at Ruth and Orpah like they're her daughters-in-laws. She looks at them like they're her daughters. Think about the grief they've walked through together. Think about the life that they've shared. Think about what they've gone through. And here, if they're going to go back to Moab, it's going to cost them something because there's a cost to returning. And they're going to have to leave behind Naomi, who they love. She calls them daughters. Or they're going to go with Naomi, and they're going to leave Moab behind which is their land, their family, their people, their gods, everything that they've known. See, if you're going to return, you have to leave something behind. And the cost to returning is this. Listen carefully. The cost to returning, to turn from one thing to another thing, is always the same thing. It's this. It's a rearranging of your deepest loyalties and loves. It is a rearranging of your deepest loyalties and loves. If you're going to turn from one thing to another thing and pay the cost to do so, your heart is going to have to be rearranged in such a way that you love things differently and are loyal to new things. Ruth's decision is significant. I mean, this language is amazing that Ruth uses here. This example of kindness and loyalty, she talks about, I'm going to take on a new land, a new people, a new God. I'm going to leave everything behind. And, I'm, and her decision has far-reaching spiritual implications because her confession of faith that your people will be my people and your God will be my God, it actually recalls the central covenant promise that God made with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when he said, I will be your God and you shall be my people. And when Ruth swears this promise to Naomi, she swears it in the name of Yahweh, which is the covenant name of the Hebrew God, owning him as her God. So Ruth pays so much to return. She turns her back on the gods of the Moabites. She turns her back on her family. We'll learn in the next chapter that her mother and her father are still alive. She has family. She left it all behind to return. Ruth pays a cost to return. The truth is, is we all do. We all pay a cost to return. And this reminds us real quickly, that no one follows Jesus. No one turns to Jesus without leaving things behind them. You know, if, if, if I get a new job in a new company, I can't say to my new boss, hey, I'm all in, but I also would still like to work some out. You know, I also would like to still work out of my old office, right? If you're at a marriage covenant ceremony and you're standing here together committing your lives to each other, you don't say to that person, I commit the rest of my life to you, but I still would love to be able to date date other people. See how that goes. See, see how that flies. I still would love that opportunity, right? Generally speaking, that's not the sort of commitment that's being made in that sort of moment because when you turn to something, you turn away from other things. You want to get healthy, you got to turn away from the third slice of pizza, right? You want to get healthy, you got to turn away from soft serve ice cream every summer night, which is what I'm thinking about. You got to turn away from things to have certain things. This is true in every area of life. Everyone pays a price to return. There is a cost. No one returns for free. So how do we return to God? If there's a cost, how do we pay it? And what is the way? And it brings us to our last point this morning. And uh, the band's going to come up. It's the way to return. So there's a need to return. The need is we need rest. There's a cost to return. Everyone pays something to return. A rearranging of our hearts. And then there's the way to return. So let's just finish this story. 
Naomi and Ruth make the journey, 70 to 100 miles. They go north, they cross Jericho Ford, they come to Jericho, they go down to Jerusalem, they come back down to Bethlehem on the other side of the Jordan, and they come back home. And they walk into the town of Bethlehem, and this passage says that the whole town was astir because Naomi had returned. It was like the gossip wheel just started turning. People were like, oh my goodness, did you see Naomi's back, Naomi's back. But the real thing was that Naomi was back And it was different this time. She left with, think about it, she left with a husband and she left with two sons and she returns with just another random Moabite widow. And I'm sure everybody thought, "Ah, you know, this is what happens when you walk away from God. She should have never left Bethlehem. In fact, there's a theme throughout the book of Ruth that the people in Bethlehem did not receive Ruth with the kindness that she, or sorry, did not receive Naomi with the sort of kindness that she received from Ruth. And so here she is returning. And in fact, they ask a question. They say, is this Naomi? And the biblical scholars say that it actually is a little bit of a um, mean-hearted question. And here's why. Because Naomi's name in Hebrew means the pleasant one. The pleasant one. And so they can tell she's not the pleasant one anymore. She's lost so much. And so by saying, is this Naomi, they're basically throwing it in her face. Is this the pleasant one? Is this the one that's so happy and wonderful? And then Naomi says in verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. And Mara in Hebrew means bitter. The Lord has dealt bitterly with me, she says. So don't call me the pleasant one, call me the bitter one. It seems like the story's got headed in a bad direction, but then there's one more verse in chapter one and I want us to see it. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. Do you notice the redundancy there? Two times the word returned, two times the word Moab. The author of Ruth is trying to make a point here. Don't forget Ruth. She returned. She returned with Naomi. Naomi didn't come back alone. Naomi should have come back alone, but she didn't because Ruth went with her, this Moabite. And then the last sentence, they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Now, this scene concludes with two things. Number one, the acknowledgement of the kindness of Ruth. That Ruth was so kind to come back to a place she'd never been before. She was going to a place she'd never seen. But she was so kind and loyal. But also, this scene concludes with not just the acknowledgement of the kindness of Ruth, but the anticipation of the kindness of Boaz. We'll see this next week because it's the beginning of the barley harvest. And the barley harvest is about to change everything for Naomi and for Ruth. In other words, Naomi's return is bookended by kindness. So what do we learn here? The need to return is because we all need rest. The cost to return, our hearts have to be rearranged radically and supernaturally to love the right things. But the way to return is the kindness of another. Naomi was never going to be able to return the way that she needed to without Ruth's kindness, and we'll see in the future without Boaz's kindness. And while Ruth's kindness is an example, a beautiful, wonderful example worth admiring and following, actually what Ruth did for Naomi means nothing to us today. It does nothing for you today. However, it reminds us of the kindness of Jesus, that Jesus' kindness is what we desperately need, that Jesus was kind to us in ways that we wouldn't even be able to fully understand. See, the kindness of Ruth cost her something. She left her home, she left her family, and she went into the unknown. But the kindness of Jesus cost him everything. 
He left his home. He left the glory of heaven. He experienced separation of the, from the Father. He went into the unknown. It cost him everything. And in this story, Ruth clings to Naomi so that together they can return to the promised land and to the place of blessing. But thousands of years later, Jesus clings to a whipping post as he's beaten within an inch of his life. Jesus clings to a beam as he walks outside the walls of the city of Jerusalem to Calvary. And Jesus clings to a cross as he dies. Why? So that you and I can return to the Father and experience the rest that we're looking everywhere else for. Jesus paid the cost for us to return. There's a need. We need rest with the Father. There's a cost. You and I can't pay it. We can't change our own hearts. We can't rearrange our own hearts. We try so hard to get the things in our hearts in the right order. And we have evidence day after day. I have evidence day after day. I, 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 don't, I can't do it on my own. But there's a way back. And the way back is the kindness of Jesus. Because Jesus didn't just cling to a cross. Jesus clung to you. And while Naomi was clung to by Ruth, we've been clung to by Christ. And by clinging to us, here's what Jesus did. He identifies with us. He experienced the human life. He experienced the pain of separation and suffering and sorrow and misunderstanding. He clings to us. Not only does he cling to us upon that cross, identifying with us and becoming our sin, now he clings to us with his righteousness. His goodness covers us so that we can be right before the Father. It's his work. It's his kindness. We need it. There is a cost, and because of Jesus, there is a way. When my 11-year-old Caroline was much younger, and she wanted to be picked up by daddy, she would stand and hold up her arms at me and she would say, I hold you, I hold you. And of course she couldn't hold me, look at me, none of you can hold me, but she, 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 couldn't, she couldn't hold me, but what she wanted was me to hold on to her. And so I'd pick her up and I'd hold on to her and she'd be holding on to me and then she'd say, I hold you, I hold you. But the truth is, it wasn't her hold of me that kept her safe and secure. It was my hold of her. You're not saved and secured because of your hold on Jesus. You're saved and secured because of his hold on you. The second you think it's your hold on him, you've got it all backwards. Because you don't have the strength. You don't have the righteousness. You don't have the currency. We don't have it in ourselves. But Jesus Christ clings to us. That's his kindness. And he holds to us. And it's his hold on us that sets our hearts at peace and gives us the rest that we all need. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that this story, this ancient story, has truth that helps us today. I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in people's hearts in this moment, doing what I am unable to do, which is to make it real, to seal it to their hearts, and to cause it to change them, and shape them, and grow them, to love you more, to rearrange the loyalties and loves of their hearts. Help them, God. Help me. That we might know your rest, you know, Jesus said, if you're tired, if you're weary, come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus is our true and better Sabbath. He's the rest that we enter into. We cease striving in our own works of trying to be good, of trying to find our way back, and we rest in his work. 
And we thank you, Jesus, for that. Just a minute, we're going to stand and sing. But before we do that, I want to pray for some of you. If you're here and and, um, you would just say, I'm in a season of unrest. Unrest. I would not describe myself as being at rest. Maybe it's a physical thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing, a mental, social, relational, um, spiritual. But um, the Lord sees your heart. And I just want to pray for you this morning. No one's going to get embarrassed. No one's going to stand up. I just want to see who I'm praying for. So if that's you this morning, just I see hands already going up. You just raise your hand. Just say, would you pray for me this morning? Because um, I haven't sensed the rest that the Father wants for me in a while. Yeah. Thank you for your honesty. I'm just going to pray God's blessing over you right now. Father, you see these hands and you see these hearts. We try so hard to give ourselves rest, but even that effort makes us tired. Wears us out leaves us empty and exhausted. And yet, Jesus, you invite us to come to you and to abide in you and to find the rest that our hearts need. And so this morning, what I pray for my friends is that they would find rest in you. Even when the circumstances of life dictate unrest, that within their hearts, they would have rest and strength and healing and hope and all the things that you've paid so much to bring to us. Release your rest over my friends this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.